Welcome back, Bible readers. This is the Rooted Podcast, and this is week number 49. And this week, we're going to finish up the rest of 1 Corinthians, as well as make our way through the entirety of 2 Corinthians. In our last podcast, we came to the conclusion that the Corinthian church had a lack of unity. And now as we move into chapters 5 and 6, we see a lack of discipline that is evident in that same church body. And so Paul will address three issues in these two chapters, and all three issues related to their lack of discipline. So first is in chapter 5, where there is a case of incest, where a man had married his mother, or excuse me, his stepmother. And so Paul censures his readers for allowing this man to retain his membership in the Corinthian body. He instructs them to excommunicate this man from their church saying that this type of sin is not even named among the Gentiles. Now, Paul notes that he had written a previous letter to them. You know, Paul was not teaching for believers to avoid unbelievers. We can and should have unbelievers for friends. That's part of witnessing. But Paul says to, quote, discipline an erring brother for them meant to disassociate with him. Now, I understand that this is Paul's authoritative word for this church at Corinth. Obviously, modern church leaders need to think carefully as to what form of discipline should be taken to have the same impact on such a person in our society today. The second problem, continuing with the theme of discipline, were lawsuits between believers. And it seems that two brothers are suing one another and taking the dispute before civil authorities. Now, let's not get wrapped up in the finer details of the case between these two brothers here, because we can easily do that. We need to look at the bigger picture. The point of this whole section in chapter 6 was that, that genuine Christians should not continue in or return to the sinful practices that mark unbelievers. For people who profess to have love for one another, suing each other was rather inconsistent. The third issue here deals also deals with discipline. It's in the second half of chapter 6, and it seems that there was also a problem in which prostitution had become acceptable in this church. It seems that some believers um, thought that they had freedom in Christ, and that freedom had no restraints. Paul carefully clarified his message to them. One author does a good job at connecting the importance for us. He says this, quote, The body of the believer is for the Lord, because through Christ's resurrection, God has set in motion the reality of our own resurrection. This means that the believer's physical body is to be understood as, quote, joined to Christ's own body that was raised from the dead, unquote. So Paul's solution to the problem of the lack of discipline in chapters 5 and 6 was the same as the solution to the problem of divisions that occurred in chapters 1 through 4. He led his readers back to the cross. Now, the remainder of 1 Corinthians chapters 7 through 16 deal with questions that the Corinthians had asked of Paul. And so he systematically answers each one. And typically you'll notice that the phrase or now concerning or now regarding the questions you asked of me. And that's his way of introducing a new section as he goes along throughout the book. So that means in chapter 7, now concerning matters related to marriage. So he's going to answer some questions related to marriage, actually related to sex, marriage, and divorce in chapter 7. Paul states that sexual desires are obviously part of our lives, and within marriage, those desires are brought to satisfaction. However, both partners within a marriage bear responsibilities to physical desires. Unmet physical needs within a marriage can often leave or lead the other person open to sexual sin. But since marriage was not necessarily a sacred matter in the Roman world, divorce was an acceptable part of life. And so Paul provides instruction on several different scenarios as it relates to divorce. And he ends the chapter with a word about singleness, which might be the better option in light of the difficult circumstances the Corinthians were in. You know, I wish we had much more time to deal with this chapter in, in, in more time in general to deal with this chapter because it's one of the central New Testament passages on the subject of marriage. However, note that this passage reveals Paul's heart of compassion. He's not a hard-nosed as some have accused him of being. He was very careful to distinguish his personal preference from the Lord's will. 
Now, the next issue is the issue of food offered to idols in chapters 8 through chapter 11, verse 1, a large section here. You know, a regular part of worship for the Roman Empire involved the eating of cultic meals, wherein much food had been offered uh, in sacrifice to idols. And some of the Corinthian Christians had evidently returned to the practice of attending these cultic meals, even though Paul considered such participation to be idolatry. And beginning in chapter 8, Paul provides some principles that teach priority of love over knowledge. You know, all the believers knew that there were no gods besides the one true God. This knowledge had led some to think that eating in an idol temple was, well, insignificant. But knowledge of this fact was not the only factor they needed to consider. More importantly, they needed to consider the welfare of other people. You know, modern culture promotes individual human rights very strongly, and this emphasis has influenced a lot of Christians. But even more important than our freedom in Christ to exercise our rights is the spiritual welfare of other people. So Paul continues to show this principle of letting love prevail in the context of his own life in chapter 9. Paul voluntarily laid aside his rights as an apostle for the sake of the gospel. But the Corinthians, you see, they saw it as a weakness and began to question his authority over them as an apostle. And so Paul says that he has the right to full financial support from the Corinthians, particularly because he founded the church, but he didn't insist on his right, even though this was a customary practice for all spiritual ministers to do. Maybe we should look at it in these words, you know, he had a right to give up his right. You know, it was Paul's choice not to receive pay for his ministry in Corinth, and he was therefore free from the patronage that might be imposed on him. You know, Paul's policy of accommodating himself to other people's doubts led some people to conclude that he was inconsistent. But his supposed inconsistency really manifested a more fundamental consistency. The work of the gospel, the message of the cross, was the great alignment around which everything in Paul's life revolved, and he encouraged his fellow Christians to make everything count in ministry. And so as you get into chapter 10, Paul reverts back to the issue of going to idols, excuse me, to um, temples to participate in pagan feasts and the idolatry that was related to it. Persisting in idolatry had dire consequences, and to prove his point, Paul pulls an example from the history of Israel. You know, four thoughts come out in this section in chapter 10. First, there's the danger that we may compromise our commitment to God, as the Israelites did when we participate in pagan celebrations. Second, some Christians have participated in fornication that unbelievers have lured them into. Third, we are in danger of falling into appreciating uh, or falling into not appreciating God's provision for us in Christ. And fourth, we should not grumble against the Lord. The temptation that the Corinthians faced were not unique, but the Lord would give them grace to handle any temptation that they might face. And so Paul finished out chapter 10 with a general warning that Christians should avoid any activity that involves or leads to idolatry. And furthermore, the consideration of someone else's conscience is of greater importance than our, their own. In other words, don't be the obstacle that might prevent someone else from coming to faith in Christ. Now, chapter 11 leaves the issue of meat offered to idols, and Paul deals with some other matters at this point, particularly the role of women in the church and the reverence with which one is to observe the Lord's Supper. Now, there are a lot of traditions that come from this first part of chapter 11 related to women that churches have applied to practices today. However, we must not forget that while Paul's instruction is good for all churches, he was specifically addressing an issue in the Corinthian assembly. And without getting into too much detail, and I'm sure I might have lots of questions about this passage from you guys, his emphasis in this section was on the authority that a woman has in her own right by virtue of creation. She must not leave her divinely appointed place in creation by seeking to function exactly as a man in church worship. Furthermore, she should express her submission to this aspect of God's will in a culturally approved way. 
At the same time, she must maintain a healthy appreciation for the opposite sex. Now, the second part of chapter 11 deals with the Lord's Supper. And so Paul instructs them to treat with reverence the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, reminding them of its significance. But he also warns them of additional discipline from the Lord if they don't obey his instructions. You know, the church today needs to understand that the observance of the Lord's Supper in a way that takes us back to the cross is one of the most powerful and effective motivators for the Christian life. Now, chapter 12 takes us to a new question that's asked of Paul, and the question is related to the exercise of spiritual gifts. Because Paul devotes a lot of material to it, it seems to be the more important issue in the book of 1 Corinthians. Paul begins in by informing the church that spiritual gifts were given to believers for the benefit of the church, not for themselves. The church is like a body, and just as various parts of the body depend on one another for health and strength, so also do the members, the people of the body of Christ. The body is to be unified as one, and yet it has diverse parts, but these parts are independent, excuse me, interdependent. They need to each other to function properly. So Paul continues his thoughts in chapter 13, explaining that love must be at the core of exercising every spiritual gift. And then Paul wrapped up his discussion of gifts by dealing with a specific problem in the Corinthian assembly in chapter 14. And there existed a problem related to the gift of tongues. Now, this is also a large and complex topic of which we don't have the time for full discussion. Tongues, while used in the early church as the New Testament was being written, are no longer operative in our world today. And the main reason is that they have been superseded by something better. Something better is that completed Word of God. And tongues provided the early church with additional revelation, but since we have the completed Word of God today, there's no need for any additional revelation, especially especially because Hebrews tells us that we have the complete revelation of God in the person of His Son, Jesus. Now, getting back to the problem in Corinth, the basic point of Paul towards the end of the chapter is that the gift of prophecy is greater than the gift of tongues. Now, think for a moment of an Old Testament prophet. The messages that he would give to the people on behalf of God were clear as he was in submission to God's authority. But the exercise of tongues in the Corinthian assembly was out of control. You know, the last prophet that we have in the New Testament is essential, or excuse me, is essentially the Apostle John, who gives us the prophecy of the future in the book of Revelation. And Revelation, I would say, is far more valuable, the book of Revelation is far more valuable for the benefit of the whole church. Now, obviously, in a church setting, the principles that Paul gives still applies today. Everything should um, be done indecently and in an orderly manner. Everything should be edifying, and a spirit of peace should always prevail in any congregation. Now, chapter 15 tells us that evidently the Corinthians believed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but belief in his resurrection did not necessarily involve believing that God will raise all believers in Christ. And so Paul takes time to explain this. Christ's resurrection gave hope to the believers about their future, but that hope did not necessarily involve the believers' resurrection. This was their thinking. Paul taught them that their bodily, bodily resurrection was part of their hope. That's part of the hope. And Jesus' post-resurrection ministry and his testimony through his apostles shows us that there is life and bodily resurrection after death. And what a day that will be when we get our glorified bodies. Now, chapter 16 concludes the book with the subject matter of giving. The Corinthian Christians heard about a collection that Paul was taking up for the poor saints in Jerusalem. They wanted to make a contribution. So for all the issues this congregation had, at least they are willing to help their brothers and sisters. And the rest of this chapter closes out the book with some final exhortations. Paul, however, does mention that he wants to come and stay for a while so he can help readdress, if needed, these problems he has written to the Corinthians about. 
All right, that's all from 1 Corinthians. Now we come to 2 Corinthians. And the main theme of this epistle is Paul's apostolic authority. The opposition to Paul that was evident as you read through 1 Corinthians begins to fester to the point where Paul needs to address it head on here in 2 Corinthians. And it was absolutely necessary for him to do this in order to preserve the health of this church. A few additional things to pay attention to as you read through 2 Corinthians. First, this letter reveals the deep emotions of Paul as no other epistle does. This letter doesn't have a systematic flow showing us that he was deeply troubled for this church. Second, there is much to say in this book about ministry life, the struggles of leaders, and their desire to be faithful to God at all costs. Third, this book reminds us that the message of the church must be the Word of God, and therefore we are to minister by the Word. Fourth, the restoration of the airing was a great concern of Paul, namely because of the rebellious critics um, of Paul. So, written by a man whose authority had been undermined, chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians, Paul verifies his credentials. Since so much of this letter will focus on pain and suffering, it's not surprising that Paul hit the top, excuse me, Paul hit right at the very beginning, trials, the subject of trials head on. But in the few opening verses here, the word comfort leaps off the page. When tragedy strikes, comfort is what we need the most, but we also need to know that suffering we're going through has some purpose in our lives. Lest we think that Paul's suffering was only imagined, he gives us a dark example from his own life in verses 8 through 11 of chapter 1. And we could pull three examples, or excuse me, three principles from suffering in the opening verses of 2 Corinthians. Suffering prepares us to Uh, comfort others. Suffering keeps us from trusting in ourselves, and suffering teaches us to give thanks in everything. So from chapter 1, verse 12 through chapter 2, verse 14, Paul takes up the topic of defending his integrity. Paul's conduct and sincerity had been called into question. You see, rumors were circulating that Paul had made promises that he didn't keep, all related to his plans to visit them. If you back up and read 1 Corinthians uh, 16 verses 5 through 7, you can see that Paul's original plan suggested that his upcoming visit would be subject to changes. However, for some reason, the Corinthian church took his words as firm promises, and when he didn't uh, make good on those promises, um, they began to accuse him falsely. Paul found it incredible, I mean, think about this, that a, char- that a change in his plans made the Corinthians believe that he had changed his character or that he was someone different. Plans change all the time, friends. Paul proceeded to explain his reason for a change in plans was his love for the Corinthians, because if Paul had come to them as he originally planned, he would have had to rebuke them for some situation that existed in the church. Instead of doing this and producing sorrow, he decided to wait and give them an opportunity to deal with the problem themselves, give them an opportunity to grow. And it seems the problem at hand was a believer in Corinth who was under church discipline. And Paul prescribes instructions for restoring this brother in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, because it seems that the church was keeping him at arm's length, even though this brother had repented. By the way, some scholars think that this Aryan brother he's talking about here in chapter 2 is the same one who had the problem of incest back in 1 Corinthians 5. But Paul concludes this section by sharing with them how deeply he had been affected by the situation at Corinth, chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Now from chapter 2, verse 14 through chapter 6, verse 10, Paul discussed ministry in greater depth than he did anywhere else in the New Testament. He begins this larger section by focusing on three essential truths of ministry. Ministry is following the leader, not taking the lead. Ministry is emitting a a pleasing fragrance to God. And ministry is modeling the truth. You know, Paul believed in the ultimate triumph of Christ no matter what feeling of failure, frustration, or anxiety he might have. While there is joy in the ministry, there's no getting away from the heartaches, pressures, and trials. 
Paul continues his thoughts in chapter 3, giving an an exposition on his view of ministry. He's giving the Corinthians a fireside chat about why they should adopt his ministry perspective. First, he notes the superiority of the Christian ministry to the Mosaic ministry. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, he contrasts the ministry of Christians with the ministry of Moses to enable his readers to understand and appreciate the glory of their ministry and its superiority to that of the ministry of Moses. Second, the superiority of the Christian ministry should produce boldness. He says that in chapter 3, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 6. He and other apostles and Christian ministers serve God under a covenant that God would not supersede, just as we today can be bold about our faith because it's built on the unshakable foundation of the covenant Christ made with us by means of the cross. Third, Paul spoke about the sufferings and supports of a minister of the gospel, chapter 4, verse 5 through chapter 5, verse 10. Uh, Paul wanted his readers to realize that his ministry was not faulty, as his critics had charged, but it was only within the will of God that he was doing his ministry. To do this, he described his own ministry as a projection or extension of Jesus' ministry. As Jesus had died and been raised, Paul was similarly dying, but he's also experiencing the benefits of resurrection. And so he used the death and resurrection of Jesus metaphorically to describe his own ministry. And then fourth, Paul clarifies that the driving force behind everything he did was the love of Christ and fleshes out what that love looks like from chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 10. Now from chapter 6, verse 11 through chapter 7, verse 4, Paul appeals to the Corinthian Christians to reconcile with him and restore their confidence in him. He wanted them to continue to experience all of God's blessings. And these believers, as you might have already noticed the pattern, have the tendency to be unstable. At first, Uh, They resist Paul's teaching, and then before you realize it, they go overboard in the other direction with Paul's teaching, and Paul knew this all too well, so he gives them some well-balanced, some well-seasoned advice. He didn't want these believers to become dangerously open-hearted to all people. He warned them not to form relationships that might result in their spiritual defilement. Defilement, excuse me. Paul had done nothing wrong. He had not led anyone astray, nor had he deceived anyone for his own advantage. There's no reason that they should feel restraint in their dealings with him. Now, Are you ready for some good news? Chapter 7, verse 5 introduces us to some good news. When Paul arrived in Macedonia, he went looking for Titus. You see, when Titus earlier had taken a severe letter to Corinth that Paul wrote to them, and he planned to meet up with Titus in Macedonia and see how the Corinthians had responded. This was a letter that Paul wrote to them after 1 Corinthians and before he's penning this letter of 2 Corinthians. And no, if you're thinking, we don't have this letter. Anyway, Paul finds Titus, and his spirits are lifted because of the positive results at Corinth. The Christians felt affections for Paul and wanted to see him again, and they were very sorry that they had been disloyal to him. Moreover, they strongly supported him against his critics, and they sought to obey him. And so chapter 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians are instructions about giving, and this connects back to 1 Corinthians 16, when Paul was taking up a collection for the saints in Jerusalem, of which the Corinthians wanted to give towards. As time passed, and probably due to the controversy with Paul, the Corinthians had begun to participate in the giving project, but then dropped off. However, now that Paul learned that they were responding to him well from Titus, he brought back that commitment to their uh, up to the forefront of their minds. He further uses the Macedonian Christians as well as Jesus as examples of excellence in giving. And he reminds them about the spirit of their giving. He tells them that's essential to have a proper attitude when giving. 
Now, chapter 10, verse 1 through chapter 13, verse 9 forms the final section of 2 Corinthians. This section is focused on Paul's defense of his apostleship. And the tone of the letter changes here. And now he faces those who challenge his apostolic authority. In this section alone, these are some of the most severe statements in all of Paul's writings. Remember that this letter is an emotional one, and defending one's ministry will definitely be emotional. So in chapter 10, he makes four points about his authority. First, his authority had been given to him by Christ. Second, authority is given to be a blessing to Christians as he builds them up. Third, his authority will allow him to discipline them if necessary. And fourth, God has placed the Corinthians under his authority since he founded the church in the first place. Now, as you move into chapter 11, Paul continues to show his authority. This time it's by exposing the false teachers at Corinth, those who are opposing him and his ministry. Paul gives the Corinthians three ways to know the difference between authentic or artificial people. False teachers proclaim another Jesus and another gospel, he says. False teachers have a lot of charisma, Paul says. And then thirdly, Paul says false teachers are greedy. Now, the resume of these false teachers looked impressive, but they had none of the credentials that count in the eyes of God. Servanthood was the most important one that Paul was trying to single out. And what's interesting is that Paul attempts to prove his servanthood. And there isn't an impressive list of what he had done for Christ. It's different. It's a list of his defeats, failures, disappointments, pressures, pains. Paul wasn't trying to impress. He was trying to illustrate what it looks like to be a real servant and to be honest about your struggle, not to be afraid to own up to your mistakes and your failures. This was something the false teachers would never do and a way to teach discernment to the Corinthians. Now, in chapter 12, Paul continues defending his apostleship, but this time it's with information about Paul's life that we have nowhere else in Scripture. Just after Paul's conversion while he was away in the wilderness, he writes of a heavenly experience he had. Evidently, he had been in the literal presence of God. But for 14 years, we're told he kept quiet about it. And even now, Paul only wants to give a few details, kind of couching them in modesty. An experience like that could go to anyone's head. Therefore, God gave him a constant reminder of his humanness, his inadequacy. We call it his thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it was, although most scholars think it's related to his eyesight. But it was bad enough for Paul to plead with the Lord three times to take it away. However, all times God chose not to. You know, maybe we today need to stop bemoaning our thorns in the flesh and accept them as gifts from God. God means for that gift to remind us of him and our need for his help in every part of our lives. Now, as Paul wraps up this letter, he issues a final warning in chapter 12, verse 14 through chapter 13, uh, verse 10. And Paul looked forward to his return to Corinth, and he shares his concerns about what he might experience and warned his readers to make certain changes before his arrival so he would not have to shame or discipline them when he arrived. The closing verse of this book is one of the most widely quoted verses, verse 14. It's called a Trinitarian benediction. You see, Paul's desire was that the was that God's grace demonstrated in the work of Jesus on the cross might be the atmosphere in which all his readers lived their lives. And that atmosphere of grace is a way that all believers in all ages need to live their lives. All right, well, that finishes up First and Second Corinthians rather quickly. And that's all the time we have for this week. Next week, we'll be going through several small books, continuing with Paul's epistles. So email any questions you have to BibleReadingLBC.org, and I will talk with you all next time.